In Session with Dr. Farid Holakou. Afternoon. Welcome to In Session. I'm your host, Dr. Fadi Tolakwi, and I'll be with you for the next two hours here on Radio Hambra. Studio number to call in 310-441-0555. I'm a licensed clinical psychologist, so you can call in with any questions related to clinical psychology, including any emotional or psychological issues, parenting issues, and relationship issues as well. You can also follow me on Twitter or Instagram or like my page on Facebook to get updates on the show or suggest topics or books for the program. And the shows are uploaded at the end of each week to my SoundCloud page and podcast on iTunes. Again, our studio number, 310-441-0555. The book of the week for this week that I'll talk about on Monday's show is So You Want to Talk About Race by Ijioma Oluo. So You Want to Talk About Race. And I'm about 70 pages in, and it's a really great book. I think important for people to read um, because uh, race and racism is a very important topic in, well, around the world, but especially in our country here in the United States. And people often have a hard time talking about it, having conversations, because it brings up a lot of feelings, because it is a sensitive topic that that lots of people um, can have strong feelings about. And then unfortunately, because of that, we often don't talk about it or we're afraid to talk about it. Even people who want to help or maybe want to be involved in a positive way might not know how or might be afraid to say the wrong things or get it wrong. And even there's a chapter about that in the book. Um, And so uh, I'd highly recommend it already, even though I'm just about 70 pages in, but looking forward to finishing the book and sharing it with you next week. So you want to talk about race by Ijioma Oluo. Um, This Friday, hope to see you on the Radio Hamral Cruise. Uh, We'll be Friday through Monday. We'll be there having a great time with at least 2,000 of our friends and so hope to see you there. I'm sure I'll be doing a couple of seminars, still figuring out the final uh, schedule, but I'll be doing at least one, I think, on Saturday. And we'll see when else we can do that. So looking forward to being there. I wanted to start off the show today um, to share an article I came across, which was really very fascinating for me. I do try to read a lot, of course, about psychology, not just in the books, but also um, articles and things online. But I came across an article that really fascinated me. And let me share the title with you. People born blind are mysteriously protected from schizophrenia. And so I saw this in Vice, um, but you can see it in lots of different people writing about this. And I actually was not aware of this. So that essentially what has been found, or in a way has not been found, um, that they haven't found anyone who was born blind who then developed schizophrenia. And so this has been puzzling, and lots of scientists and researchers have wondered about this and looked in psychiatric wards and hospitals looking for someone, and they haven't found anyone who was born blind um, and then later developed schizophrenia, which is quite puzzling. Uh, And so they're thinking that this might give us some insights into schizophrenia, uh, what might be causing it, what might be factors that contribute to its cause, could that have, of course, impacts on treatment and prevention um, is also yet to be seen, but it is really fascinating. So I, I thought it was so interesting because, again, I'd never heard this from anyone myself. Um, I'm sure some people listening had known this, but 
it was something quite fascinating. And still, I'm trying to, uh, you know, I'm almost in doubt of really, is that true? So uh, I only read this article about two days ago, and I'm still trying to figure it all out for myself and understand it better. Uh, but wanted to share that with you since it was so fascinating to me. Um, and so there's a lot of things that are interesting about this finding. One is, so one of the main features of schizophrenia is the hallucinations that people can have. And that's something that's talked about in the article is about the hallucinations. Most frequent, I believe, is auditory, but visual is also something that people experience. So essentially seeing something, having a perception that is not actually there in reality. So hearing voices that are in your head and thinking they're from someone else or outside or seeing things that aren't there. And so um, what's interesting about this connection between being born blind and not developing schizophrenia is that we know that people who develop vision loss or blindness later in life, or if you are, for example, to blindfold someone for a long period of time, they might actually start to experience hallucinations. So this is, in a way, can seem almost paradoxical. Um, but for example, if you blindfold people and they've done studies, for example, one that was shared that they had 13 healthy individuals and they blindfolded them for 96 hours and 10 of them reported having visual hallucinations that were quite um, intense and, and really extreme. So when we are deprived of visual input, when we have an intact visual system in our brain from birth, this actually can lead to the development of, of um, hallucinations, something I think it's called Charles Bonnet syndrome, which was mentioned in the article. So this is really interesting that there's this fact, when you're born blind, you don't develop schizophrenia, but when you lose vision, you might actually develop um, hallucination, something that's similar to having schizophrenia or one of those symptoms that's associated with it. And so different researchers have weighed in on some different hypotheses about what might be going on here. One um, that's interesting is it's been shown that individuals who do develop schizophrenia do have visual issues. They tend to have issues with their eye movement, different perceptual issues that they have before they develop schizophrenia. So this has been found. Even children who develop schizophrenia later, when they look back at adults now and then looking at them in childhood, they see that they were more clumsy or even when playing catch, for example, when someone throws you a ball and you're trying to catch the ball, they were a little bit worse at things like that, showing that there might be already these visual impairments that they have, and it's possible that these could be contributing to the development of schizophrenia. Uh, one possible explanation for that is that we live in a world, we often think, for example, I'm sitting here looking forward and hearing things, that I'm taking in everything and every moment um, and analyzing or processing all that information. But what's becoming more clear, there's more people in support of theories that really what we're doing is constantly making a prediction of what we're going to see or experience. And when things don't match that prediction, we make some adjustments to um, take care of that air or to make sense of that air. So it's possible that people with schizophrenia are making false predictions or there's some issue here with the prediction making because of their vision or what they expect to see doesn't match what they see. And this could lead to some issues down the line that might contribute to the development of schizophrenia. Whereas if someone is blind, they won't have those experiences because they won't be taking in anything visually. 
So this might be a way that in we could say that people who are born blind might be protected from developing schizophrenia is that they don't have to deal with this potential mismatch that someone can have. Um, another theory or had to deal with ways that people who are born blind, we know that the brain is plastic. I talked about this again on Monday's show, um, meaning that it does evolve or change or things that we experience can lead to actual changes in the brain uh, and structure and connections and things like that. Um, and so people who are born blind have to make some adjustments. So if they're the visual part of their brain, the occipital lobe, perhaps one of the primary areas of the brain that deals with vision, but of course vision um, takes place or involves parts of the brain all over the brain. Um, those parts of the brain that are usually reserved for vision are going to be used to do other things. And this might serve some type of protective factor. And interestingly, one of the researchers was talking about how uh, a lot of the strengths we see in people who are born blind um, are things that are actually weaknesses or deficits in people who have schizophrenia. So there could be some type of a connection there that being born blind leads to experiences and leads to the person to have to adapt and adjust in ways that actually protects against schizophrenia. And so they're looking at those connections as well. Is there something in the neuroplasticity of individuals who are born blind um, who then uh, actually might protect them in some way from developing schizophrenia, which was very interesting for me as well. And even um, maybe I can acknowledge, uh, you know, almost embarrassingly that when I said, oh, it's strengths of people who have blindness, because usually we think of blindness as a disability, but of course there are ways that they make up for it that actually make them stronger in ways than people who are born with sight uh, don't have. So um, just another reminder of something that oftentimes what we look at as a disability or a weakness might have certain, of course, negative impacts on someone, but also can lead to some positives as well. There can be another side to that. And I've actually talked about that topic before, things like ADHD and creativity, how someone who might be having ADHD might actually also be more creative as well. So it's not just a bad thing, but so we can see how being born blind might actually protect someone from um, developing schizophrenia, which was quite fascinating. So I want to read more about this topic because it is interesting, and in the, the article I mentioned was in Vice, but you can also just Google it and find uh, other people writing on this. I, I was not aware of it, so I just wanted to share it with you today. Um, again, the title of that article was People Born Blind Are Mysteriously Protected from Schizophrenia. This was in Vice, uh, vice.com. You can go online and check that out. All right, let's go to our first commercial break. Studio number 310-441-0555. We'll be right back. Welcome back. So in the first segment, I was talking about um, something that was new to me, that people who are born blind seem to be protected in some way from developing schizophrenia, as there have been no reported cases of someone who was born blind developing schizophrenia. It was quite fascinating for me. And I mentioned the point that when we look at something or some issue or whatever it is characteristic of someone or ourselves, we oftentimes see it as an all bad or all good type of thing. But most aspects of ourselves and things we're dealing with 
are much more complicated than that and have more than just one side, even something that seems to be bad. For example, um, for someone who was born with sight, to think of not having sight seems um, very bad and something I wouldn't want. But we can see, as I was reporting in the, the study that, um, or in the article, that people who are born blind have some um, cognitive advantages that they develop from being blind. Now, I'll also say that as much as I'm recognizing there's more than one side um, to these types of things, and we have to be aware of that, it doesn't mean that we should undermine the experience of someone or think, okay, well, um, if they have some disability or have some issue they're dealing with, then they're, they're lucky or there's nothing challenging about that because there's more than one side. But just being aware that things often are much more um, complicated or there can be multifacets to an issue that we might not always be aware of when we first think about it. And I want to make the connection to aspects of our personalities as well or aspects of who we are. Um, very often parents will worry about their kids, of course, for lots of reasons. But one thing I hear a lot is about kids being shy. And so um, parents come into therapy all the time um, about worrying about their child being quote unquote shy. And so we worry about them that they, they shouldn't be this way. And it's interesting because almost never will you have someone come in and say, my child is too outgoing or too social, uh, which shows that we have a bias towards being outgoing, being extroverted, and one against being introverted and being more um, someone who is what looks shy or might just be slower to warm up or might not be um, the person who wants to be the center of attention. But we somehow think that it's better to be the other way, that everyone should be an extrovert. And so when you have a child or when you're dealing with yourself, but let's focus on dealing with children who has certain characteristics, it's important for you as a parent to recognize and see your child for who he or she is and to see them uh, as more than just uh, something you want them to be or you think they should be, but actually for who they are. And so this is also complicated by the fact that as a parent, you want to help your child grow and to become the best version of themselves and to overcome obstacles and challenges that they have. And so you might actually help them evolve in certain ways, not to change them because they are bad, but to take away obstacles that they might have. So, for example, if they deal with anxiety, we know that likely they'll always have at least some level of anxiety. It doesn't usually just go away, but we want to help them face that anxiety to minimize the negative impact it has on their life. But coming back to their disposition and how they are, if they are, let's say, more of an introverted child, what you want to recognize is that this doesn't mean something bad. So I work with parents and they say, you know, we go to a party and our child is quiet and you see other kids playing and laughing and having fun. We want our kid to have fun too and to not be shy or be embarrassed or be afraid to, to go out there. And yes, that makes sense that you don't want them to feel shy. And when it looks like fun for the other kids having fun, you want your child to experience that as well. But your child might be different from the other children and we have to look at them and accept them where they are first and to make them feel okay for how they are and recognize it's not all bad. So this bias we have towards being outgoing and being social and the way that we call being social, meaning you talk to lots of people, isn't only a good thing. You can have some negative sides and being more 
quiet and to yourself is not a bad thing either. A lot of very great thinkers and people who make a big impact and can be great friends and family members and all sorts of good things have been introverted and quiet. And so to make your child feel bad for being who they are, especially for being bad, uh, for being something that isn't anything wrong, is actually very harmful to them and something we should really think about. So look at your child as, as uh, however they might be acting or being and try to recognize the good in that. And so being quiet isn't necessarily all bad. People who are more introverted tend to be more reflective. They tend to think about things a little bit more and ask questions more about how other people are doing. They might be more aware or mindful of other people. They might be deeper thinkers. So someone who's more quiet in the traditional sense might be better at having a meaningful conversation with someone rather than someone who's very social and, and uh, you know, goes and mingles with so many people. Not saying that that has to be bad, but sometimes that person might lack the depth of having a deeper conversation and is only good at having the surface level uh, friendly conversations. So they're good at making that first impression, but not good at making a lasting relationship. It's not all good if you're just only able to do that. So recognize that, you know, my child might be more of a, a deeper person that's fine. That's actually very good. And we want to recognize those strengths. And so what parents often do is because we think we have to get rid of these things that we assume are bad, we one, miss two things. One is that the thing we think is bad is not even bad. And we also miss the strengths that the person has or that comes with that characteristic. So your child who is shy or quiet might actually have these strengths that you're completely overlooking because you're only seeing it as a bad thing because you already have these assumptions of what a child or what a person is supposed to be like. So we have to be aware of those assumptions that we have. Okay, it's good to be this way, to look this way, to act this way, to not act in this other way, to do this and not do that. All sorts of things that we have made as assumptions that we've taken as um, good and bad when we're not realizing things are much more complicated than that. And this even happens when people are in a relationship. Whoever you choose to be with um, will, of course, have lots of good qualities, and they probably have some bad ones too, or of course they do, because we all do have some bad qualities. Not only that, sometimes those bad qualities might be the flip side of the coin of the good quality that you like. So, for example, you might like someone for being so... Uh, flexible and free-spirited, and you really re admire that about them. But at other times, that same free-spirited person who is so flexible and, and spontaneous might feel unstable or unpredictable to you and might make you frustrated. So this is something that very frequently happens in relationships. People start to date someone, and at the beginning, of course, there's the infatuation and the excitement, and they're attracted to certain qualities, and then over time, those same qualities that they liked, they start to dislike. And it could just seem like, oh, over time, we're going to dislike someone or over time, um, we get bored of each other, something I talked about last week. But it's more complicated than that. It's not just that we're getting bored of them or that um, we're, we're getting tired of them and want something new. It's that something that attracted us to them was attracting us for reasons that were more complicated than just something we liked. Sometimes we're drawn to someone uh, who has a quality we wish to have. 
So for example, using that same example, you uh, get attracted to someone who's very free spirited and spontaneous and, and because you're someone who is actually more anxious and needs everything to be planned and prepared and doesn't like change and doesn't like for things to be different. So you like it to be a certain way. And so when you see this person, you see an unexpressed aspect of yourself. You too wish that you could be more that way, but you might be afraid to be that way or anxious about being that way. And so when you see it in this other person, it's very refreshing and exciting and intriguing. You're seeing something of yourself in them or something you wish you could see more of in yourself. And so when you interact with them, it's this very exciting thing at first. But of course, over time, as you are connecting to them more in your lives or getting more intertwined, when they are so what might feel like to you all over the place and not consistent or too spontaneous and not um, stable in the way that you want to be, it's going to start to upset you. And so you might feel annoyed by them. Oh, you! I can never depend on you or I never know what you're going to do or you're going to say or you try to change the plans all the time last minute. And so that thing that attracted you to that person is now something that is making you, uh, it's a source of conflict and contention between you and your partner. And this is where we have to take a step back and think, okay, what is going on here? Why am I feeling this way? And also, why did I choose this person to begin with? Um, what can be interesting in therapy is that people come in for couples therapy and they talk so bad about each other at times and about their different bad qualities that you wonder, well, why did you guys marry each other? Or why were you together in the first place? And you realize that it was oftentimes some of these things that were attracting them to one another at first that are now bothering them. So they actually picked someone, chose someone with these qualities that they are now complaining about. And we have to take responsibility for that. Okay, I saw that this person was this way or had these qualities and I picked them anyway. Or maybe actually I picked them because of those qualities and now I'm realizing why it's more complicated than I thought. But I might have thought I wanted that, but I actually didn't want all of that or I didn't want the flip side. And we have to accept that whoever we choose to be with will have some bad qualities. And a lot of times those bad qualities will be part of uh, the flip side of the good qualities. So for example, you want to get a really nice fancy car that's a sports car and you love that it's fast, but then it's fast so it also uses more gas and you don't like that part, but that's part of having that kind of car that will have that type of performance is you're going to have to fill up the tank more and spend more money on gas, which could be annoying. And I, I'm not going to get into the environmental aspects of it, but just from that standpoint, it's something that comes together with that. You can't have one with the other. You can't say, I want the, the fast car um, that uh, doesn't use a lot of gas. And I guess Tesla owners might disagree with me, but that's a separate point. But my main point is to say that we have to be aware that there are trade-offs with almost all qualities that you find. Someone who is um, very, uh, like I said, spontaneous might be not as predictable. Someone who is um, more stable, you might feel like they're boring. And that's the flip side of that. Someone who's on the other end, you might like that they're so consistent and stable and reliable. But then at other times, it might make you feel like they're too boring as well. But you've picked that person. And so at the end of the day, when we pick someone to be with, of course, they're not going to be perfect. Of course, they're going to have flaws. What we're really trying to see is, are there flaws, things that we can put up with and live with? 
And are there flaws and your own flaws, things that are compatible enough where you can be together? Because sometimes if what you like is the opposite of what they are in some ways, it's not going to work. You're going to have to realize that I can't deal with those issues. And so um, I like the way of thinking of relationships is when you pick a partner, you're picking a set of issues to deal with. You're going to have stuff. You're going to have the fights that you have consistently. There's usually some themes. There's usually some things that you fight about that each couple has that we fight about. For example, timing. You know, I'm always on time. They're always late. We fight about um, uh, jealousy. When we go somewhere, this thing comes up. We fight about how to spend money because I want to spend more. They want to spend less. Whatever it is, you have your set of issues that you're going to have. And you basically have to decide along with okay, what are all these good things that I like about the person? Are these issues that we have big enough or too much to handle, or can we handle them uh, and be in a relationship? And John Gottman, who has done lots of research on marriages and what makes marriages and relationships work, he, he talks about how there are some unfixable problems. There will be some issues that you will have with your partner. A lot of them you can solve and you want to fix those. But sometimes there are some issues that just don't get resolved. There always will be a difference between you. Hopefully you'll be able to see each other's sides enough that there's that mutual respect and understanding, but you might always disagree. And rather than feeling like you have to solve that problem and fix everything, sometimes you realize that there's some things you just have to go around or live with. You'll never fully solve it, but it might not have to ruin your marriage or your relationship. And you'll learn to deal with it in some way that it leads to being less of an obstacle uh, than it has to be. And maybe your relationship can survive. So when we're with someone and also with ourselves or with our children, it's realizing that people have um, lots of different qualities and those qualities are going to have different facets to them. Some we like and some we don't like. And sometimes we'll look at someone or look at ourselves and say, no, I want to just pick this part and take away that part. And usually it doesn't work because when you take something out, it has that good and that bad. If someone is uh, a sensitive person, it usually means they're more considerate, more empathic, more caring, but they might get overwhelmed more or might get offended more by something. Now they might be able to work on that to some degree, but getting rid of it completely is going to be impossible. That's going to be part of who they are. And so we can recognize that, that you value, whether it's in yourself or someone else, their sensitivity and their ability to be there for people, to be aware of things, to be attuned to other people, to be empathic. And you also recognize that at times it makes them respond in ways that maybe for you, you wouldn't respond, but you also recognize the skills and strengths they have as well. Usually our strengths and weaknesses are two sides of the same coin. And recognizing that can help us be more accepting and loving of ourselves and our own quirks and good and bad qualities and also those of others as well. All right, let's go to another commercial break. Studio number 310-441-0555. We'll be right back. Welcome back. Let's go to a caller. Radio Hamra, you're on the air. Hello. Hello. Yes, hi. Uh, hi. Good afternoon. Good afternoon. Uh, yes, I have a question about my son who's 10 years old. Okay. Uh, I give you the general information. I appreciate if you could uh, ask me any question that you need in order sure. to um, give me the guidance. 
Um, he's 10 years old, and uh, he's very competitive as far as the sport. He is considered, however, as a highly sensitive kid. Mm-hmm. And um, he does very good in school. And he's very known that to be very sportive um, boy. Um, so he watches lots of ESPN, and he's in any type of um, kind of a sport, you name it. And he really takes a lot of pride uh, for um, doing those sports. And yeah. he's known for that among his friends and peers. Um, he has a sister who is about um, two and a half years older than him. However, the question I have might sound pretty trivial, but, but I really need your guidance because I got to the point that I really need some kind of way of finding how to resolve this. Mm-hmm. About two years ago, he had a lot of interest to, you know, have a good shoes, a nice, a very uh, kind of a brand name kind of shoes, and I bought it once um, or twice. But then it seems like he is really obsessed of buying more expensive and more expensive shoes. He's looking at all those pictures on Internet and got to the point that he doesn't basically want anything except those fancy shoes to the point that I think for his age, for what he does, is really not something we should do. Mm-hmm. So I really don't know how to, he, whatever price you ask him, that's what he's going to ask for. Mm-hmm. Um, I really don't know what to do. If I'm, I'm afraid if I buy more, in, buy for him, he's going to get into it more. If I don't buy it, he feels like he, he really gets really, at this point, he gets really upset, very disappointed if we don't do it. Mm-hmm. Um, what do you think I should do at this stage? Okay. So, I mean... Uh... It's going to be a, a long path towards what we're getting at. So I know you're probably hoping to have a solution that would be one conversation or one action that's going to change all of this. But we can see there's a lot that, that's going into all of this, as there always is. So, you know, there's issues related to how he looks to others. That's very important. And you've talked about him being very competitive and good in sports. Um there's, I think, issues related to you wanting to make him happy and make him feel good. And maybe because he's more sensitive, as you described him yourself, you, you see him react in ways and you don't want to have him have those reactions. So you try to prevent them from happening. And so you don't know what to do now. And maybe that's partially what's gotten us here is that we haven't wanted to disappoint him or say no to him in certain ways that now if you do say no, he gets very disappointed and upset and, and and that puts you in a tough position. So it's going to take some time to get us back or to, to help him and help you with what's going on. Just so I get an idea when you say he likes expensive shoes, how expensive are some of the shoes that he wants you to buy for him? Well, um, his, his, his friends wear shoes that's not more than $50, but his shoes is, goes up to 250 some of them 180 mm-hmm. And you know kids at this age do not wear it more than a few months because they're growing. Yeah. And you just feel like, boy, he's getting into And I keep telling him that if you buy expensive, at least I want you to wear it for a few years. He said, get me bigger ones so I can fit for, you know, next two years. The point is not only the money, yeah. the point is the obsession that sure. you're getting towards these things. Yeah, well, that's the thing, you know, like I said, the concern with how it looks to others. And, you know, sneakers, especially when you're in sports, 
Um, even I, you know, you were saying he watches a lot of ESPN. I watch a lot of sports in ESPN and also online. You see always more and more. It's obviously been for a while, but sneakers are very um, trendy and very expensive and people follow them and they're sharing them and they're always talking about different shoes they have. And so there's all sorts of uh, whole culture related to shoes and especially sneakers and athletic shoes. So I'm assuming he's deep into that world, especially online and um, wants to participate and feel, yeah, and be part of that that world. Um, but let me ask you also financially, I know you said it's not about the money part, but are you guys spending lots on things? Is that Are there a lot of name brands in the home? No. Okay. No, actually, that's the whole point. None of us wear that. None of us is into those brand names. Mm-hmm. And not, not, I mean, out of our four parents and plus the sister, none of us just wearing something that is very um, kind of uh, works for our needs and not necessarily based on the uh, brand name. However, you know, we, we think of if something works for you and is comfortable and works for your needs, that's good enough, not mm-hmm. necessarily a brand name. Yeah, but, okay. Um, that's what yeah. we are training him or, or what we are actually practicing. Mm-hmm. But he's always come to that and always talking about, like, we buy him, for example, a very good brand. However, it has to be the name of that basketball player on that tennis shoes in mm-hmm. order for him to get attracted. And these are the things that we are saying that, you know, if you need shoes, you need shoes. But constantly putting everything you have for shoes, it's, it's not something we want to do for you. Yeah. But, now, if, you, if he's using, let's say, you know, I don't know if he has allowance or his own money. That's different, but uh, you know, setting limits with him from what you guys buy him is going to be important, and it's not going to be a limit in the sense of we're just going to give you a rule out of you know to hurt him. It's to have a conversation with him to help him understand why you're doing it and what the limits are, and and making that part of your guys's um, relationship where you guys talk about these things because you know yeah, it's kind of like um, I don't want to say addiction, but it's like anything. We give to ourselves or to our kids. Once you give it, it's hard to take it back or to make it less. So if it's junk food or if it's screen time, if your kid plays four hours of iPad every night, it's going to be hard all of a sudden to say, now you can't play anymore. We're going to make it less. So we have to be aware of setting these limits, but also, as I said before, being aware of the bigger issues that are involved. How does it relate to how he wants to be seen by other people? How much does he put emphasis on how he looks to other people, both in what he's wearing, but also you mentioned him being very good at sports. And of course, we all like to win. No one uh, enjoys losing. But for some people, winning can become too much, where they're too preoccupied with being number one and being the best to the point where it interferes with how they feel about themselves if they lose and who they are without winning or who they just are in general. You know, and so I worry about him putting too much pressure on performance, which could also tie into this issue of shoes and how he's going to look to other people um, as well. So I want you to think of it. Obviously, it's not just about the shoes. It's about uh, everything else that's connected to that as well. Okay. Thank you, Dr. Do you suggest me to get some other sources of help as far as a book or something else that we need to emphasize or how we going to... Basically, uh, we talked to him. That, as I said, that brings disappointment. So, what happens? Yeah, tell me. Give uh, me an. Give me a description of a conversation. What happens when you? T- he asks you for a shoe that you don't want to get him, or have you guys said no and not gotten him shoes at the end? Uh, 
that he wanted. That's very true. That's the second second one. Yes. You have said so, no? Uh, yes. Basically, what happened, um, as you said, that he has some allowance. That, that's part of, the, I think, our argument, too. He says, it's my allowance. I'm going to spend on this. Then next time, this is the money that I got for this reason. I want to put it for this. So in some ways, you're absolutely right. There are some parts that is his kind of money or allowance or mm-hmm. the gift that they gave him for, for example, his birthday or for some, some other things. Mm-hmm. So they give him like money, like giving to us, but then he knows that that money is for him. So mm-hmm. he wants to use that for his own shoes. And we are basically saying you have you know, three shoes already. These are being bought already less than a year ago, and they look nice. It works. But why are you want to get another one? Well, you know, in six months down the road, you're not going to use it. And you're constantly watching which shoes is available or what's the newest one mm-hmm. um, and things like that. Basically, we, at this point, basically, we told him, we have to really think very hard and find some resources to tell us what to do because we are really getting to the point that, as you said, is more like an addiction to me. Yeah, and it so, looks like an addiction. but here, yeah, and the the thing is also to understand him better, we have to understand what the shoes mean to him. So, for you, when you think of wearing basketball shoes, you just think, okay, if they're comfortable and they're in good condition and they look okay, then you don't need other ones. But to him the different shoes have different meaning or it's a status symbol or it's a way of showing off. So we have to have a conversation with him where we see him where he is. If you tell him you have enough shoes to play basketball with, that's not why he wants to buy the new pair of shoes, right? He wants to buy it for other reasons. He might actually buy some of these shoes and not play basketball in them. He wants to wear them with his regular clothes, you know, as, as right. right. You're absolutely right. Correct. So yes. it's not just about function, just like if someone buys, you know, if an older person has a hundred pair of shoes, it's not because they don't have things to put on their feet and they buy another pair of shoes. They enjoy the shoes and the status and how it looks and fashion and whatever else. So he's getting into that. And it's not that we want to say he can't like that kids get into different things, comic books, video games. And of course we do want to be aware of trying to create some boundaries for them so they don't lose themselves in there or go too extreme, but they're going to have interests. Every day, I'm sure he's going online, looking at different shoes, people posting about new shoes that are coming out. They're only making 200 of this one. They're making, you know, this one only limited edition. And so he's going to know all these things and he's interested and he enjoys that. So I don't, we can't take that away from him completely, but we do have to have conversations with him about setting limits. Now, if he's using his own money, that's one thing, which is okay. But sometimes someone will say, well, he uses his own money and then he won't have enough money for something else. And then we end up buying him that thing anyway. Does that happen? Um, well, kind of. It could happen either way. It, it could happen. He, he basically, for example, he, well, as I said, that he's very competitive. He was in science of Olympia and and he got it, you know, he won, and then he said that because I won, I'm getting this. So we said, yes, we put that much for, you know, your effort or whatever, and then final result was very satisfactory. So, yes, we put that money. Then for the other things, so he add up all these things to come up with, for example, $300 tennis shoe, which to us is not only the money, the fact that he wants to pay that much for this. I mean, the 300 if he would have said, I buy three shoes, I wouldn't have any problem. But 
he wants to pay one shoes, as you said, what it represents to him as something besides the shoes. Yeah, um, but, but you know, even um, when you say having three shoes, I, I get what you're saying, but to him, it doesn't make that much of a difference. He's still spending $300 on, on shoes and he's going to wear them for not that long. So the functional part is not really the reason for the shoes. Now, I don't know, again, when it comes to your guys' financial situation, how extreme it is what he's doing, but if he's really focused on this i don't think you have to take it away from him completely but i think it's more to have conversations with him where you really try to understand okay why are these shoes important to you and he'll maybe he'll tell you and you won't even care or understand he says oh this is the new limited edition jordans that they're bringing back from this and you know it might not mean too what? much to you but we have to be able to have a conversation we're not just going to be able to stop it or uh make him stop caring about these things and it's hard well, to put a limit actually, on it. yes actually we asked him what does that mean to him he says it's a very good investment <laughs> um a lot of people buy these shoes and in three years it's not there anymore the price of this hundred becomes 300 which i never look into that how, how much of food is into no there is well but there's that, people that make a lot of money although i mean usually if you wear them you know and they get worn out you're not going to be able to sell them but maybe you can but they there is a whole business there's there's uh, people who make, you know, millions of dollars doing this. I mean, as a company, they buy sneakers and they resell them because, like anything, they can become collector's editions or limited edition or whatever it is, and they can make money. Now, more than likely, you know, I remember when I was a kid, I did this with basketball cards, not maybe at the same level, but me and my brother would buy basketball cards and we would say, well, it's an investment because, you know, the prices do go up and they do, and we'll sell them later, but... I don't even know where those basketball cards are, or where they went, and we didn't really make a lot of money selling them. But it was what I would tell myself and tell my parents that we're going to make money selling these cards someday, um, and you know, so we would buy them. So you know, he's saying that, and you can understand that, and there is some truth to it, and that it's possible. Now, is it likely he's going to create a business out of this? Probably not. But um, you know, I've heard the same thing about uh, Louis Vuitton bags or Hermes bags or watches and different things and sometimes they are investments they can go up over time but for most people they just keep them themselves they're not really selling them um at, at any point so there's that point okay so he says it's, it's a good investment as well uh you know for me it's more important to have a conversation with him and like i said i'm more worried about also how does he feel or how much pressure does he put on how he looks to other people even when you say he's known for being a good athlete that's not obviously bad if he, he's doing well in sports but something for you guys to be aware of is to not put so much pressure and emphasis on um results you know that he has to be the best or uh you know more focus on the effort that he puts if he's working hard that's really good not the result as much as the effort part because uh, i i 100 percent agree with you i I think, I believe, because parents say we do, but they might have acted differently, but I truly think we really emphasize, especially when, when we are in a conversation, not only with him, but with my daughter, too, that she says, Mom, I, do you think I did good? I said, well, you put the effort. The result okay. is okay, however that happens. We, we, we have that That's conversation. That's good. Okay, good. However, if I may ask mm -hmm. from here, how am I going to basically carry on? Should I buy into buying him another shoes? Should I basically just just say let's have conversation? Our conversation basically, as I said, that he says that is a good investment. 
um, are taking care of it. I'm not going to bear it. I'm going to keep it and then sell it later. Things like that. That's our conversation. So I don't know what to do. Like buy into it, just say nothing. But I know he comes back again to it, whatever, because I have seen him yeah. watching again those shoes, how the prices goes or how the color is changing. Mm-hmm. So what do you, I know that is a very tactical kind of question, but yeah. just, it's not a strategic um, kind of plan. Is The plan is basically um, just look more deep into why he wants his image to be a certain way. Well, um, there's, yeah, there's that. But also, there's no, I know you're looking for a black and white answer, but there isn't one. We can't say never buy him another pair of shoes or don't let him. And definitely not always buy him everything he wants every time. You have to sometimes accept him being disappointed. If if it's his money, I don't think that's okay. And I know his money is a funny thing because obviously you guys pay for his whole life. It's not that he's hopefully not working anywhere. So he's you guys are paying for everything, I understand. But you know, if he has some money he puts aside and he decides to use it in this way, that I think is okay. But be aware of if you're now feel like, oh, I have to buy it for him because he says, now I want these $300 shoes, but he doesn't have it, you might have to sometimes let him be disappointed and say, you know, well, sure. you don't have that. That's And that's the part where uh, I don't know if this is an issue for you, but for many parents, the disappointing their kids doesn't feel good or making them feel sad or doing something that makes them feel sad or not doing the thing that makes them feel good. And we don't do it because we want to hurt them, but sometimes we have to set the limits that are appropriate for them. So if he says, I want these $300 shoes and he doesn't have any of his money saved up, and then you say, well, you know, if you slowly save up money, you can get it. But don't get into, okay, well, now we'll give it to you if you get A in this class or if you do this. It just, to me, it's like you're trying to find excuses to give him what he wants if that's what ends up happening. Okay. So, I mean, yeah. Yes. So in general, the way I, I, I think that I could um, uh, understand is is basically, uh, in your opinion, you think that if we, if his money and we buy it for him, doesn't make him more into shoes or has it might to do with it, it might make him more into shoes. I'm not saying it's going to make him less, but you you have to you know you could tell him if you want you could tell him we can set a limit with you. Okay, you can buy this many pair of shoes a year or this many, you know, that you can, and have a that's, conversation. That's exactly. Yeah. That's exactly what we said. We said two shoes a year. And then he says, okay, so, but I have this amount of money extra for myself. So I'm going to put it for these shoes that is, you know, higher brand or whatever that you want. But you're absolutely right. We said this is two, two shoes per year, you know, the total is 300 or whatever, 200. And he's saying, well, I have this amount of money on my own. I'm going to add up to that two shoes. That's my allowance. So I'm going to make it to $500, supposedly. Okay. Well, I mean, whatever, however you make the limits. And again, it's about, you know, I know when we think of limits, we think it's like a rule that we have to make for them. You could talk to him and say, okay, is it two shoes, three shoes and whatever you both agree with, but then you have to stick with it. That's a very important thing with any limits. You know, I know parents, they say we make a limit for bedtime and then they break it every week. And then they say, well, it's not really a limit anymore. So be aware of, are you holding the limits for him? And just creating okay. a boundary. It's not to make him feel bad. It's in a way to protect him with a boundary so he doesn't get too yeah, much yeah. into it. And it's important for you guys to be consistent with whatever you set with him. I understand. So basically have that kind of whatever that we are putting even is 10 or whatever, but just to stick to it and let him know that's what is accepted. And after that, basically there's no 
point of conversationing about it. Yeah, um, I mean, no, there could be conversation, but we're not. You're not going to change, so you can talk to him about it, but you won't say. Okay. You okay. know, unless some, you know, yeah. So you want to be consistent with him, and you have. It's all about a conversation. It's never just like a, a rule that he has to follow, okay. as if you know. Yeah. Appreciate it. Doctor. Sure. Good Thank luck. Nice so talking to you. Take care. Bye bye. Thank you. Bye bye. All right. Let's go to another commercial break. We'll be right back. Welcome back. You know, in the previous uh, caller, we were talking about setting limits. And so I wanted to continue on that topic because it's an interesting one and one that's very challenging for most people and parents to deal with. And of course, we set limits with ourselves, but I'll be talking more about setting limits as a parent on your kids. So as anything, we have to think, as anything we do, we have to think about the intentions or why we're doing something. Why are we setting a limit? And so for many people, when we think of limits or just like when we think of laws or rules, we usually think of something that's created or for many people, it's this feeling of something that's created by an authority that actually is just to hurt us or hinder us. For example, to get in the way of us enjoying life or having fun or doing something we like. And so there's this assumption we have about rules and limits that it's something that's made from the outside by someone who doesn't really have our best interests at heart or who wants to take away something from us. Or even we think of the word limit in the way it seems like we're saying taking something away or literally limiting something. But when we're setting limits for our children, what our mindset is and what we need to recognize is the limit is in the benefit or for the benefit of the child to actually love our child more and to do something that's going to help them grow, help them develop, help them mature, um, not actually take something away. And last week I talked about how as a parent we have to be very careful and aware that we are parenting from the mindset of a servant, someone who's serving our children rather than a dictator, because it is so easy to fall into that trap or to get in that addicted to that power that you get by being a parent and using that against your child and feeding your own ego more than you're loving your child. And so for many parents, unfortunately, with that mindset, the rules and laws they make have this feeling of a dictator making rules and laws uh, on someone else. So it's inflicting pain. <laughs> you don't like it. You have to stop now. You can only do this. You can't do that. And there's a feeling of using that power to control someone else, sometimes even just at our own whims or what feels good to us. We might say it's for the good of the children, but there's something we like and feel good about setting those rules for someone else, telling them what they can and can't do. And so it's easy to fall into that trap. But when we recognize and hopefully come from a different mindset that I'm serving my children, I'm trying to help them the best that I can, we recognize that the limits that we set are actually in order to love them, in order to help them. Just like you set uh, the walls and the roof of the home, those set some kind of limit. They're there to protect them and to make them safe. It's not because you want to not let them be free and move around. It's that you want to protect them and have these limits in where they are. So they're actually enclosed and safe and can feel okay. It's not because you want to uh, get in the way of their freedom. It's in protection. So similarly, when we set limits for them, it's coming from that 
mindset or should be coming from that mindset. Why are we limiting the number of hours your child watches TV? Not because we don't want them to have fun or we don't want them to enjoy it, but because we actually know it is so fun and they do enjoy it so much that if we don't help them set a limit, they might watch too much to the point where they don't get enough sleep, they don't um, uh, do their homework, they don't do other things, socializing with their friends, being active, other things that are also good for them. Why do we set a limit on the junk food they have? Because we know it's actually bad for them. Not because we don't want them to enjoy the yummy taste of the food. It's because we actually know that if they have too much, that can be bad for them. And we also understand it can be hard to control how much of it they have. And the more of it they have, the more of it they'll crave and keep wanting more. So we set that limit out of love, not to hurt them, not to prevent their pleasure or their enjoyment, but actually because we want to help them grow. It's coming from a place of wanting to help them. And so as a parent, we have to think about this and be aware of it because there are some parents that can fall in love with the power of being able to set the rules and tell someone else what to do and what not to do. And then some parents go to the other extreme where they think, because I love my child, I should never set a limit on them. If they enjoy something, I should let them keep enjoying it as much as they want to enjoy it. If they want to stay up, they should stay up as late as they want. If they want to watch TV, they should watch as much as they want. If they want to eat this, they should eat as much as they want. And I'm never going to say no. If they want me to buy something, I should buy them whatever they want. I should never say no to them. We associate no and setting a limit with taking away love. And we have to realize that's not what we're trying to do. And by actually not saying no, not setting any limits, we're actually not loving our child. By allowing them to do anything, anytime, without any structure, any uh, limitations that actually help to protect them, we're not loving them and giving them what they need. If you let your child stay up too late, that can be bad for them. If we let them play too much video games, that can be bad for them. If we let them have everything and anything they want, any moment, they can get addicted to having too many things and they can learn that the world will never say no to them and everything has to always go their way. As I mentioned last week when I talked about parents making sure they don't act as dictators, I also said we have to be careful not to let the kids become the dictators either, meaning that they can say I want something and we drop everything and give them everything they want all the time no matter what age they are and no matter what they're asking us for. So we have to shift our mindset to the feeling that I'm not setting a limit to hurt them. These are limits of love. I'm setting this to help them. I want them to have enough sleep. And even that's how we communicate it to our kids. Because sometimes when we talk about setting rules and setting limits, we still have that old school mentality. Okay, laws come from above in a punishing, hurtful, oppressive type of a way. So I have to tell my kid from now on this, and this is how it's going to be because I'm setting limits. And that's not the mindset we want to show them, first of all, that the limits are against them, that we are against them, and that there's no reason or rhyme or reason for the rules. It's just because now we're saying it's a rule. We want to have a conversation with them. You know, we wanted to talk about watching TV because we know how much you love your shows, but we know sometimes when you start watching them, it's hard to stop, and then you don't have time for homework or you start your homework late. What do you think? And you have a conversation, and they might say, yeah, I know last night I just kept watching TV and I didn't stop, and then I didn't have enough time and I fell asleep doing my homework, and yeah, that, that wasn't really good. So we're not there to judge them and make them feel bad about what happened. 
Um, we're trying to help them recognize what happened and see what we can figure out together. So what do you think we can do? You know, what do you think is a good amount or how can I help you? Because I know it's so hard to stop once you start. And look, we've all been there even as adults too. You start watching Netflix and you watch much more than you expected. And of course, Netflix tries to make that easier by starting the next show uh, before you really have enough time or maybe you really uh, take have the volition to change your mind. You're already watching it. Yeah, let me watch the next episode. So we've done that ourselves. So we really do understand. It's not that we're lying to our kids and saying, oh, you should just be able to stop anytime. Um, it's really easy. We know it's tough. And so we have that conversation and we set that limit, realizing this is a limit that is like the house that creates the walls. It's giving them structure and it's giving them safety. We're not hurting them. We're not trying to take something away. Sometimes actually saying no and setting a limit can be a loving thing if it's done with the right intention. If you're saying no because you want to wield your power and feel powerful as the parent and the dictator, well then yeah, that no is coming from a bad place. But sometimes that no is coming from a good place. You're not limiting your child. It's just like the mindset of I want to let my child do whatever they want and play wherever they want. So if he wants to run in the street, I should not stop him. No, of course we know we have to stop our child and protect them. We're not setting a limit from saying I don't want you to have fun in the street. We're saying I don't want you to get hurt. So I'm going to teach you not to go there. First, I might have to enforce it by grabbing you and picking you up if you're too little. And as you get older, I get you to realize that this is not safe to play there. Playing is really good and we want to play, but we want to make sure we play in a way that's safe. And so we learn that we play this way and slowly your child will understand the limits and the logic of the limits and the good of the limits. And they'll have that for themselves. Because another problem about being the dictator type of parent is we parent with fear. We teach our child to fear punishment. So avoid breaking the rules so you don't get punished. Not because actually following the, the rules is good for you. We sleep enough time so that when you wake up tomorrow, you feel rested. It's good for your body. It's good for your brain. It's good for your emotions. Everything. It's going to be good for you. Not because I want you to sleep so you have a boring life and so you don't enjoy yourself. And so slowly the child starts to internalize those limits of love and realize that they are good for them. Oh, it's, it feels nice to get enough sleep. Sometimes it's hard to do the things I need to get to sleep on time, but it feels good. It feels good to get my homework done. So I want to do that. It feels good to go outside instead of just being indoors all day. So I'm going to start doing that. And so we want our child to internalize those limits, those positive limits, those limits of love to incorporate them into their own life. Because when we're not there to punish them, then they're not going to follow the rules if we're just giving it to them from a punishment type of standpoint. But if we're doing it from a standpoint of these things are good for you, that's why we're doing it, then they slowly will understand that and do that themselves. And they will be that internal limiter and that parent within themselves in a good way, not limiting as in taking away, but setting the appropriate boundaries and structures for themselves and their own lives. So setting limits can be the best thing you do for your child if they are genuinely limits of love, not limits of just expressing your own power to be the dictator in the home. All right, let's go to another commercial break. We'll be right back. Welcome back. So in the previous segment, I was talking about setting limits for our children and recognizing that actually when they're done from the right mindset, they are limits of love. They're coming from a place of wanting to help them. Um, and at the end, I was saying how if we do this and we put those limits for the right reasons and also create conversations with them where we show them why we have these limits and why they can be helpful for us, 
um, they start to internalize them over time. And so we can look at the same thing when it comes to setting limits for ourselves, because any of us have uh, issues that we wish we did either less of something, we are procrastinating, we wish we uh, worked out more, ate less, didn't smoke as much, didn't drink as much, whatever it is, we have limits that we want to set on ourselves. And as actually I mentioned, when it comes to being a parent, this can help us because sometimes when we're looking at someone else's behavior, it can seem so easy. Oh, just stop playing video games so much. Stop doing this so much. But then we realize, you know what? There's issues that we ourselves struggle with. Whoever you are as a parent, there's something probably you want to limit in what you do or wish you did more of this and or less of that. And so we, it's good to have that humility and that mindset and remember that as easy as it is to look at someone else's life and say, oh, it's so easy to stop whatever it is you do too much of because that thing has no significance to you, they could look at you and say the same thing. So we have to keep that in mind. But when it comes to setting limits for ourselves, this can create um, an interesting dynamic because it brings back some of these issues of being a child and being um, having parents because you're trying to be this internal parent for yourself. And so... Um, when people are setting limits for themselves, sometimes it could bring up the same feeling of, I'm, I don't want to set a limit for myself. I should get to do whatever I want. That childlike part of ourselves comes out that thinks if I'm setting a limit, somehow I'm depriving myself. And again, we're not setting the limit, whether it's on someone else or on ourselves, or it shouldn't be if we're having that, the, the right mindset in order to harm them, hinder them, interfere with their fun or progress or enjoyment, we're doing it because we know it helps them. So if you want to go exercise in the morning, it's not because you want to feel tired or you want to feel bad in the morning and go exercise, it's that you think it's good for your health overall. The long-term benefit is there. So you sacrifice some short-term pain or discomfort, um, tiredness, whatever it is you're dealing with, because you think it's better for you in the long term. And so I've seen people and I've, I've done it myself, but when they set goals for themselves and then it's getting a little bit hard, uh, they'll say, oh, oh forget it. I, I deserve to do this. I deserve to take a break. I deserve to not follow this rule. Or they say YOLO and YOLO means you only live once. Maybe you've heard that term similar to FOMOS. They sound the same. That means fear of missing out. But there's this, the saying of YOLO means, oh, you know what? You only live once, so enjoy uh, whatever you're doing, which I think is kind of funny because you can also say you only live once, so you should live your life the best way or give yourself the best results. But usually when people say that, they say YOLO, that means let me make a stupid decision or let me make a decision that feels good in the short term, but long term has negative consequences for me, but I just want to do it. And so it's giving into that temptation of doing the immediate gratification rather than recognizing what might be better in the long term. And actually I saw, I don't know if it was like a meme or a picture in the last few days that I really liked. It said, work out because you love your body, not because you hate your body. So it's not that you're working out because you don't like how you look and you think it's so bad. It's actually because you want to do something that's good for your health and, and to give more love towards yourself. And that's the same thing we're doing when we're setting these limits. It's not because um, you hate yourself and who you are is bad, or it's not because you hate yourself and you want to not enjoy life or feel good. It's because you know it'll be good for you in the long term. So the limits are limits of love that you're putting on yourself. Because we know that we are driven towards doing things that feel good in the short term. 
um, even our whole emotional system essentially uh, and on, on the talk I do on the cruise it's going to be related to emotions and why they're so important our whole emotional system is essentially about going towards something or going away from things either pursue or get closer or withdraw from something that's a good thing go towards it it's a bad thing go away from it now of course as humans it becomes much more complicated than just about safety and danger or feeling good and feeling bad but essentially comes down to those things and so in the moment when you are left choosing between something that feels good now and something that's going to feel good in the long run it makes sense that there's a lot of weight on the scale pushing you towards doing the thing that feels good now because that's going to feel good now and you'll feel it and you know it's there whereas something in the future you don't really know first of all you can't feel it and even you don't know what if it's really going to happen even uh, i can understand in an evolutionary way you don't know if you're going to even be alive to experience that so uh, when you're investing money there is this sense of okay i can spend money now and enjoy it or do something or maybe in 10 years 20 years 30 years it'll be good it, it doesn't really make sense to us in a way of making it emotionally make sense in that moment because you get to enjoy something now or maybe enjoy something in the future and even uh, i've talked about this recently how when we think of our future self it feels like another person it doesn't feel like us so it's even not even us really enjoying it in our mind but anyway so it makes sense that we're very much drawn towards doing things that feel good in the moment that's just how we're wired and it makes sense we can understand it and that's why it takes some effort and some um, energy to get ourselves to do the things that are better for us in the long term. It takes some planning. It takes sometimes um, setting limits on ourselves, sometimes having someone else set a limit for us. You get a trainer that you say, I'm going to meet you at the gym at eight in the morning, seven in the morning, because I might not go myself and you're going to be there and you're going to push me to work out harder. Or you tell someone, I'm going to uh, you know, I want you to wake me up tomorrow morning, or if you see me watching TV tomorrow, stop me because I have to read and let me know I have to read because we know we might not even be able to stop ourselves in the moment. And sometimes this is called, a, I think it's a Ulysses agreement or a Ulysses pact, where it's basically you know that you might not be able to stop yourself later or to be able to limit yourself later. So either you impose it on yourself or have someone impose it on you. And it comes from um, the story, uh, um, I guess it was, is it Ulysses or Odysseus? I'm, I'm blanking. Uh, but anyway, he knew that he would be drawn towards the siren's song if he let himself command the ship. So he tied himself to the ship and said, no matter what I say, don't listen to me, because he knew he would not be able to resist the temptation. And so that's what we're telling ourselves. I know tomorrow morning, if I try to wake up at 5.30 and go for a workout before work, I'm not going to let myself wake up. I'll go back to sleep. So I'm going to tell someone that, hey, look, tomorrow morning you shake me until I'm awake or don't let me get back in this bed because I have to make sure I go work out tomorrow morning. And so we make it so that something from the outside will impose that limit. Not because we don't like ourselves and want us to feel uncomfortable, but because we know when we can really think about it in a rational way and think of the long-term consequences, we know that that is the better thing to do. And so this also comes back to the idea of emotions and how important they are. So I think they are very important, but I also know that if we aren't as aware of them or understand them, they can lead us astray. Because if you just pay attention to the feeling in that moment, it just feels better to go back to sleep than to wake up. 
even if it's better for you long term. Or if you're watching TV and you know you have to do some paperwork, it might feel better to keep watching TV if you just feel the feelings of that moment. But when you understand your feelings, you say, okay, right now this feels really nice. It's comfortable to just keep watching TV because I don't like doing the paperwork and I'm not sure about how it's going to go and it's boring and sometimes if I get it wrong, it's frustrating and I have to do it again. So it feels better to watch TV, but I know that if I overcome this feeling right now and I get started on the work, I will feel much better later on because as I'm fully aware of my feelings, I also recognize that there's some anxiety about not having the paperwork done. So I can hear all my feelings and understand them in this moment and make a decision based on those feelings that I think makes the most sense and also about thinking about them rationally. So we can put all that information together to make the choice. Because I think some people, when they hear me talk about emotions and how important they are, they think that then we live a life where our emotions dictate and rule everything we do. This feels good, so I do it. I was mad at that person, so I yelled at him. I was feeling bad about this, so I didn't do it. I didn't want to go there, so I just didn't go. I didn't feel like going to work, so I stayed home. And that's not what we mean by paying attention to our feelings. We take in all of our feelings. We also think about them critically and think about where they're coming from, what them, they might be telling us. And then we make a decision that we think is best with all of that information. So it's not that our feelings dictate what we do, that we make our feelings dictators, but that actually our feelings are just a big source of information that we are going to take in. So I'm taking in that information, taking in the information, thinking about the future, why I might be feeling this way, and then make a decision based on all of that information, not just acting on the feeling. So when we come back to the idea of setting limits for ourselves, we have to recognize again, what does that limit mean? If it feels like punishment, it might mean that throughout your life you felt like laws and limits that you've had coming back from um, your family and also maybe in society have been looked on as something that an authority figure did to punish you, to hurt you, um, to oppress you, to put you down in some way. They weren't making those limits from a loving space. And that might be the case. Maybe that was what you experienced in your childhood and in some of what you've experienced in society. It very much can be the case. But now when you're setting those limits for yourself, you can hopefully shift that mindset so it's not about hurting yourself, putting yourself down, trying to take away from your enjoyment in life, but it's actually because you love yourself, you want a certain result. You go to work even when you're tired because you know you might need that money later on because that's going to take care of you. You go to exercise when you don't feel like it or uh, early in the morning or later than you usually do because you know it'll help you because you love yourself. You want it to be good for you. So we set those limits for ourselves out of love as well. And we have to challenge that feeling that could come up. Immediate gratification is always going to kick in and try to tell us, you know what, just don't do that thing. You don't need to do that. Just take it easy. Just relax. Oh, you can start tomorrow. Or how much of a difference does it make? Or you deserve to do this or deserve to do that. And of course, we do deserve breaks and we have to be at sometimes give ourselves that flexibility. So of course, we're not going to be so hard on ourselves that we never take a break, obviously. But we have to realize sometimes that voice is not coming from a place that is knowing what's good for us long term. It's coming from a place of just giving in to temptation and feeling that immediate gratification. And it's not actually recognizing what's best for us long term. If we really love ourselves, we have to sometimes take a step back 
or always really take a step back and recognize what am I doing? What's the bigger picture of what's going on? How will this affect me down the line? Not just what feels good in this moment, because we know that's going to lead us astray. If you're addicted to some substance, of course, you're going to want to use that substance. In that moment, it's going to feel like the most right thing. It's going to feel stupid not to do it. It doesn't feel good. You don't like it. You'll convince yourself that the right thing to do is, you know what? You can start tomorrow. You can start on a Monday. You like to start at the end of the month. You know what? I have all this stuff left. I might as well use all of it and then start. All different types of reasons that are going to point towards immediate gratification. So we have to, in a way, overcome that inertia that pushes us towards immediate gratification because that's what feels good in the moment and that's what we're wired to do and try to overcome that and recognize that when we set limits for ourselves, it's not to punish ourselves or to make ourselves feel bad. They're actually limits of love that we're setting. All right, let's go into our last commercial break. We'll be right back. Welcome back. So in the last segment, I was talking about setting limits of love for yourself and recognizing that when you are setting some kind of limit for yourself, it's not to punish yourself or not to hurt yourself or to take away from your enjoyment in life, but actually because you recognize it could help you in some way long term. So it's actually coming from a place of love. And so I wanted to talk about self-love for the last segment of today's show, uh, a topic that of course, sounds good in a lot of ways, but people can have lots of reactions too. And even sometimes even the notion of having love for yourself can come off as a negative thing, as some way of feeding your ego or um, uh, getting in the way of being hard on yourself as far as pushing yourself forward. Because if you love yourself, you're going to be easy on yourself or soft on yourself when it doesn't have to be any of these things. When we talk about genuine self-love, it doesn't mean love yourself in a way that puts you above other people or means that you're better than other people. It's having love, having compassion for yourself. And sometimes we can use those terms uh, interchangeably, self-love or self-compassion. I might use love more today. Um, but it's having that good feeling towards yourself and feeling you're worthy of being um, taken care of, that your rights matter, what you want matters, that you see yourself for who you are. And so it's actually something good. And also the other side where people are afraid if they love themselves, they'll be too easy on themselves. It relates to what I was just talking about in the previous segment, that when we love ourselves, we actually do things that can be challenging or hard, but not to punish ourselves, but because we think they are good for us. So I take care of myself because I love myself. I do things that are good for me long-term because I love myself. I work hard because I love myself, not because... Um, if I don't, I'm a loser or not because, uh, you know, if I love myself, I don't need to do anything. It's actually, no, I love myself. So I have to work hard because I deserve that. I want to work hard. I want to be the best I can be. So self-love doesn't mean at all you have to take it easy on yourself. It doesn't mean at all that you have to not try hard. Uh, it actually means you will push yourself forward in the right way. And so this again brings us back to the mindsets we tend to have about different things that if you love something you have it do nothing 
You don't have to work. You don't have to do anything. You just sit there and relax, and and that's all you have to do. Um, it reminds me of that story or joke. Uh, obviously, it's not real, but uh, of someone who dies and doesn't know if they go to heaven or hell, and then they're in a, a, a nice, comfy room, and they're bringing the person food and taking care of everything, and they're just in this bed, and they're like, oh, I guess I was a good person. I went to heaven, and they keep taking care of them. And, and then after a while, uh, he wants to get up and walk around. They say, oh, no, no, you can't get up. You have to just lay in that bed. And he says, okay, but I want to do this and say, no, you can't do that either. And so eventually he sees that he can't do anything. He's not allowed to do anything. And so soon he comes to realize this is actually hell. So it looks like heaven where everything is taken care of and you don't have to do anything is actually hell. And yet we do this with ourselves and with our loved ones. For example, uh, as our relatives get older we think you know what they should have to do nothing we don't want them to work to lift a finger they just have to sit around and just you know watch tv or listen to music or whatever they want to do but they don't have to do anything but we don't realize that's actually going to contribute to killing them first of all they're not being active but also their life won't feel like it has any purpose or meaning or their that they have any value so really, what's the point of being alive if you have no value? So we think that doing work, doing things is bad and doing nothing is good when that's usually because what's always happened is doing things was something that we had to do for someone else. The boss, the government, some authority figure said do this, which really had little benefit for us and had benefit for them. You work hard so they make more money. You still don't get that much. Uh, you follow their rules because that's what they want. They want to have peace and order in a way that they like. So the laws haven't been for us. They haven't been for our benefit. Working hard usually wasn't for you. But really, uh, when we get to do something, when we get to work hard in ways that feels good for us, it actually is for our own benefit, our own well-being. We feel good about that. Um, so we should think about that mindset a little bit differently, that actually working hard is something we are lucky to do, working hard in ways that feel good to uh, do things that we're good at or we feel good about is actually something that will feel good for us. And so if we love ourselves, we give ourselves those opportunities. So self-love shouldn't be something we should be embarrassed about or think it makes us feel weak or that we're not being good. When we love ourselves, we actually want the best from ourselves. We push ourselves as hard as we can to become the best we can be. We don't just take it easy on ourselves and think, Oh, I, I want to relax and not do anything. That's not going to feel good. That's not genuine self-love to not work hard. If you want to be strong, you have to keep doing things, right? And that's going to make you feel better rather than feel worse over time. So self-love isn't an action of making us more lazy. It doesn't mean when we love ourselves, we don't have to do anything. When we love ourselves, we actually get to realize we, we want to do more. We get to push ourselves. So this is where those limits that I was talking about before actually come from a place of love. They're not coming from a space of limiting. They're coming from a place of actually helping us. There are limits in the moment, but they're actually helping us grow in the long term. If I put a limit in how much I watch TV so that I read more, that's a limit, but it's helping me grow. If I put a limit in the certain things I'm doing that might hurt me in other ways, the same thing. It's actually in the, the service of loving ourselves. And so another aspect of self-love that's important that relates to this fact that people think, if I love myself too much, I'll be too soft on myself, is self-love also means we have to know ourselves. 
because to really love anything, you have to know it. You have to understand it. You have to be aware of it. If you love your child, as some people do, and just say, oh, you're perfect, you're perfect, everything about you is perfect, well, that sounds nice. And of course, the words are pleasant, but your child doesn't really feel loved in the sense that they don't think you really see them because you just say everything about them is perfect and good and the best and the best and everything was the best. Well, there's not really a connection to who they are. And so the same thing with ourselves. A lot of times people think when you love yourself, that means you think you're the queen or the king and you're better than everyone else and you're stronger than everyone else. Well, no, that's not what we mean by self-love. Self-love actually means I see myself as equal to everyone else, just like everyone else is worthy of love. I'm worthy of love as well to love myself so i don't put myself above other people i actually see myself as an equal to other people who is worthy of love as well i don't have to um, make myself better than others i can see that as if i'm equal then i should also have to work and do things and they're going to work and do things as well so self-love isn't a i'm a god or a goddess it's i genuinely see myself as someone who deserves care respect and i'm going to love myself because of that and so if we can improve ourselves in this way in the love that we have we'll see that we'll actually do things that will help us in the long term as well so if i know myself i know my flaws and see them for what they are but i recognize that my flaws don't make me unlovable or my flaws don't mean i'm now not worthy of respect for myself or other people or i'm not worthy of having my needs met I recognize that all humans are fallible. All humans have flaws. And I too am human and I see my flaws and I say, oh, that's how I am and this is what I am good at and I'm not good at and here's an area of that I can improve in or weakness. Here are some of my strengths, just like you would with a child. Again, if you genuinely see the child, you're not just saying, oh, you're perfect, you're the tallest, you're the smartest, you're this. You see them, you say, oh, you know, she's really good at this and she's not so good at that doesn't mean you love her less because she's not good at something you just recognize that's how she is and who she is and you love her you look at her face and you say i love my child you don't say oh well you know if her nose was bigger i would love her less or if her nose was smaller i would love her more or nose was you just say i love my child for who they are you see them and so we have to see ourselves as well okay this is who i am this is how i am these are my strengths these are my weaknesses here are my flaws and when we love and accept ourselves it doesn't mean that we just stop trying to grow and get better. We see, oh, you know, I can, I can get better at this. So let me work on that. Uh, the analogy I sometimes use when we talk about acceptance and love is if you work with a child and tomorrow I'm, I'm looking forward to seeing the kids when I tutor them. And if a child comes to me and is having a hard time with the math that they're doing, I have to accept them where they are and I will love them and say, okay, so she's having a hard time with the, the multiplication that's how that's where she's at right now i will love her there but i'm not just gonna and i'll accept her but not just accept meaning that i don't want her to improve i'll love and accept that that's where she is today and i know that she can continue to grow and i want to help her in that growth and so we'll work on it and, and she'll work on it too and i'll encourage her to work on it to get better at it because i want her to be better because she deserves that not because who she is now is bad and unlovable but because it's good and feels good for her to grow and i want her to meet that potential so the same thing comes to ourselves i see my flaws i can see where my weaknesses are it doesn't make me unlovable so i love and accept myself but it doesn't also mean that when i see my flaws i just say well so what that's what it is get used to it even to myself i say i want to improve for myself i want to get better 
Self-love means I want to be the best version of myself because I deserve that. Not because if I don't become that, I'm unlovable, but because I want to be the best for myself because that's going to feel good. So when we have that genuine love and compassion for ourselves, we recognize who we are and also who we aren't, what our strengths are, what our weaknesses are. We get in touch with all of that. And then we also strive to continue to be better because we deserve that, which is what we do for the people around us as well. When we love them, we love and accept them as they are, but we want to encourage them to grow or help them grow in ways that they want to grow because we care about them and we know that that's what they want and that's what will be good for them. So love and acceptance doesn't mean love and accepting and resigning and saying, this is it. It means I accept who you are and how you are now. And I love you, but I also want to help you grow because I know you want that. And so we can have that relationship with ourselves. Okay, this is who I am today. How do I want to continue to grow in the next day, week, month, year, and the rest of my life? And what can I do to encourage that growth and continue to become better and better and become that best version of myself? So we can love ourselves and also recognize that we can grow. It's actually the only way you can do it is to actually see who you actually are. When we attempt to just say, you know what, I'm perfect. Nothing's wrong with me. Everything about me is good as it is, and I never need to change. That's coming more of a place of defiance of just saying, I want to just say I'm good and not look at myself. No, I want to be genuine with myself as well, just like we hopefully are with those around us to see them, recognize them, love them, accept them, but also help them grow however we can and of course help ourselves grow as well all right we've reached the end of today's show again the book of the week is so you want to talk about race by ijioma aluo thank you to azali here in the studio you've been listening to in session with dr fadi have a wonderful day